Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is debut novelist Meredith Ritchie. Her new book is Poster Girls, which is published by our friends at Warren Publishing. Meredith, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And first, Meredith, you are from North Carolina, where I used to live, but I met you in Aspen, where I live now. How did you find yourself in Aspen on a book tour for your debut novel? Oh, it was a wonderful, uh, fun, uh, community-based story. My son uh, went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and his roommate um, had uh, got funding for a project where he, one summer, in between, I think, his uh, junior and senior year, he traveled around the world in his little Prius, around the world, around the country in his Prius, to um, to visit uh, several independent bookstores. And so um, he helped me with my website and it's just a, a great person. So I handed him a copy. And I'm like, talk about this as much as they'll listen. And uh, so I was able to connect um, with Explore Booksellers through uh, that student and, and that documentary that should be coming out uh, fairly soon. So that's fantastic. Thank you uh, for telling us about this. And I um, I went to grad school at North Carolina State University, so I will not hold it against him. That he went <laughs> to UNC. Um, actually, UNC were extremely supportive when I ran the North Carolina Book Festival. So I, I always thank them and uh, Daniel Wallace in the creative writing department there. Um, one Most more schools do great things. So yeah, that's absolutely. one example of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, one more general life question. You say that you wrote this novel as a cure for acute empty nest syndrome. Can you tell our listeners more about this? Yeah, so life is all about transition, time marches on. And in uh, 2017, when I got the idea for the novel, um, I was in, a, in the need for uh, a distraction. I wanted to learn something new. I'm a lifelong learner. And so I, and I'd always been a good business writer. So I decided to take a class on uh, writing fiction that would time it well with um, my very dramatic emptiness. So I have triplets uh, that were uh, turned or went to all went to college in 2018. So that was why the, the timing um, worked out very well. Yeah. And I cannot imagine raising triplets. Good for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if it happened, you know, then, Hey, what other choice do you have? But yeah, one, I have my hand full with one for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, um, now let's get into this novel, Poster Girls. Meredith, can you take a moment to set this novel up for our listeners, please? Um, you know, well, historical fiction was always my genre as a reader, so it, it naturally transitioned to be my genre as a as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think if you had to boil it down, it would be a women's empowerment story but it uses some historical context to teach us some, um, you know, modern cycles of misunderstanding and, or, you know, what, what did we learn and what did we experience uh, as a result of World War II in this country? There's a lot of historical fiction, World War II novels that are based in Europe, but what did we, um, what were some of the dynamics we experienced in this country that were 
present at the time. And then as soon as the war ended, uh, the tree snapped back. So it went right back to the way that it was. And uh, what what did we fail to learn after mm-hmm. that? End? So that's yeah. sort of what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And um, we'll talk more about some of that in a moment. But first, Meredith, I grew up in Charlotte for a while, and then my family moved to the periphery of Charlotte uh, to to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Um, are there other books that take place in Charlotte? I'm off the top of my head. I'm familiar with one, Landis Wade's book, but I can't think of others. Landis Wade, yep, it does have one um, that's about in the 1700s, about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also another one called um, Tomorrow's Bread that is sort of uh, about the, so so I write about the um, neighborhood called Brooklyn, uh, or former neighborhood in Brooklyn uh, that was part, I'm sorry, called Brooklyn that was part of Charlotte and part of sort of the inner city of Charlotte. And then it was in the 60s and 70s, it was part of urban renewal. And so uh, the book uh, Tomorrow's Bread is about, is set in that urban renewal time period when they are um, destroying the houses and in, in the businesses in Brooklyn to renew the downtown area. So um, so that that's a good one. That's actually a good extension, I, th- I thought, of my story a little bit. It's not the same characters, obviously, but it is, um, you know, the, the vibrancy of Brooklyn is represented in that book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Meredith, why do you think that there are only these small handful of books about Charlotte? So when I was growing up in Charlotte, um, it was in the era where there was absolutely nothing downtown after 5 p.m. It was, you yeah. know, sidewalks rolled up at 5 p.m. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now it's not quite that way. Like the last couple of times I've been there, it actually feels like a real city. Um, so why do you think that people have not taken advantage of um, Charlotte as a literary setting as much as they have in other large cities? Well, it's it's a newer city, right? So it is kind of bright and shiny. Um, and with that comes a, you know, do, do, how much do we preserve our history? Uh, and so I always sort of liken it to Austin and Austin came up with a slogan, you know, kind of keep Austin weird. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlotte did not adopt that slogan for whatever reason. And, um, I, I think it sort of shows in it. And so, um, Oh, there's another set of books that was, uh, I'll have to remember it. Um, sorry, you can edit that out. Yeah. Um, but I will have to remember that it was, uh, oh my gosh, it's a mystery, a mystery set of books. Anyway, um, so there are other books that are set in Charlotte, but it seems when, I, and I was born here. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I lived here for a lot of my life. I also lived in the, the Midwest for a brief time period. And when I stumbled upon the shell plant and how large it was and what a big impact it had to the city for, you know, that time period in the 40s, I just couldn't believe I never knew it existed. And so I think that because Charlotte was smaller at the time, because World War II encouraged people not to talk about what they did because they didn't know who were spies and all that kind of thing. Um, they just got used to not talking about it and they just forgot it. So it made me wonder with a city the size now of Charlotte and the rapid growth that it's, it's experienced, what else has it forgotten in its own history? And 
So that's why I wanted to, when I, once I found out that the shell plant existed, I really wanted to dive in. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Charlotte's slogan, is it still Charlotte's got a lot? Yes, Charlotte's got a lot. Right. And yeah. I use I use that um, for writing the book. Mm-hmm. So I, I have, you know, a Charlotte born author. Mm-hmm. Um, I used a nonprofit to learn how to kind of write fiction um, here in Charlotte. I used a Charlotte publisher. I used a Charlotte based artist to do the, the cover art. Um, and, you know, it's a local person that was the, the model for the cover art. Mm-hmm. Uh a lot of local flavors. So I was kind of stubborn about that. I was like, well, maybe I don't have to go to New York to get all this done. Maybe I can do all of it in, in Charlotte. So let's see what Charlotte does have. So I tested that theory. And the cover art is outstanding, by the way. Of course. Thank you. Absolutely. Listeners, we're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Meredith Ritchie. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Meredith Ritchie, author of Poster Girls, which is published by our friends at Warren Publishing. Speaking of Warren Publishing, Meredith, who is Warren Publishing? What have they done and what has it been like working with them? Um, They've been great to work with. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love the fact that they, uh, are, are close, you know, they're in the metropolitan area of Charlotte. Uh, great group of women who, uh, you know, have a passion around um, getting a story out there that may, you know, struggle on some of the uh, more traditional um, publishing outlets. Mm-hmm. So they take ownership of it, they believe in the story. Um, I thanked three of the main um, people over there in my acknowledgments, uh, which is, you know, commonly done, but they, it, it, you know, they really appreciated it. So almost like it wasn't necessarily expected, but it was definitely uh, appreciated. And they, um, you know, they, they have a sort of the pulse. They're really the only um, publisher of fiction that is in the, in the Charlotte area. Mm-hmm. So, which is, uh, which is nice. Yeah. that's good to have that Yeah, for sure. And speaking of acknowledgements, um, can you tell us a little bit about the burgeoning uh, music and brewery scene that kept you <laughs> busy while you were working? <laughs> yes, it is quite vibrant. And uh, he has taken full advantage of that. He has a real passion around uh, the community aspect of uh, the Charlotte brewery scene, and it's it's a it's a small but growing um, scene, and in getting a lot of recognition, you know. Whereas um, Asheville gets a lot of the the really big product because their source of water, pure water, is is unparalleled. Mm-hmm. Um, but Charlotte is is a reason people are coming to Charlotte. And you asked before about uh, how has Charlotte changed and what does Charlotte kind of have to offer. 
so what you see different around um, downtown now is actually uh, little, you know, buses and uh, people touring and getting the history of of the city and and that didn't exist, you know, uh, when I was here, maybe when you were here, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So so it's kind of fun. And uh, I think it's an interesting aspect of, you know, we've got the Whitewater Center, we've got uh, the brewery scene, we've got the barbecue scene is another, you know, really great um, aspect of it. And, uh, and that's why people want to come. And then you know, the concert scenes, things like that. Yeah, for sure. And um, so back to World War II, I also... Uh, like you had no idea of the existence of the shell plant. Um, mm-hmm. Just like when I read Landis's book, I had no idea about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. These are things that were not taught uh, in the yeah. schools there, et cetera. Um, what was it like in Charlotte, North Carolina during World War II? And how much research did you do to find out? Yeah, so what I learned is that uh, there were corporate military partnerships like this one that were happening all over the country. So in other states that I've spoken in, you know, I've actually been able to point to, you know, just down the road here, there was another example of a corporate military partnership. It may not have been as big or well-recognized as the one in Charlotte, but the point is it was happening sort of all over as part of the war production effort. Mm -hmm. So um, the one in Charlotte happened very fast. It was um, the U.S. Navy met with um, the leaders of the U.S. rubber company. So the U.S. Navy, uh, was the one that put up all the money and the assets, and then U.S. Rubber Company, which became a predis- was a predecessor of Continental Tire, uh, became the managed all the labor, and uh, and the facility was uh, they bought twenty three hundred acres, so it was enormous. We have a um, a local um, amusement park here called Carowinds, and I always tell people you could fit six Carowinds inside the footprint of this thing. So it was very very large. Um, it had, they built 250 buildings in less than six months time, and it got up to employing over 10,000 people and their estimates, um, that up to 90% of those were women and a large portion of those were people of color. So I really wanted to kind of, um, explore that, but the, the corporate military partnership and why Charlotte became so, um, such a darling of the military was because it was East Coast, but it was not uh, right on the East Coast. So I didn't know this, but there were German U-boats right off the the, the uh, coast of Cape Hatteras, which would be more of the, um, you know, where Virginia and North Carolina meet on the Atlantic coast. And they, uh, you know, just didn't know what the German uh engineering capabilities were going to be. So they liked that it was it was close, but it wasn't too close that it would be at risk. So that's why they invested so much money in Charlotte, which is about three and a half hours um, in from the East Coast. So it wasn't right there on the on the the ocean, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Side note, my first uh, real job was at Carowinds. I was the guy that oh. ran around in the Scooby-Doo costume. So that was... Uh, no way! I would probably yeah. ran into you at one point. That's so funny. Yeah, for sure. It was always... I've been going to Carowinds my whole life. That's funny. <laughs> I was always, you know, 150 degrees in that costume. It was interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um well, in this period of, uh, in Charlotte during World War II, what were the attitudes towards uh, women and minorities? Yeah, so um, the interesting thing was uh, 
Franklin Roosevelt had just, and this was in 1941, so this is before we actually entered the war, but I think they had a suspicion that we would enter the war. So he uh, issued a presidential executive order, 8802, and it was, it said that, that basically it prohibited racial discrimination in the defense industry only. So this was 20 years before the Civil Rights Act. Um, this was the first time after the Civil War that racial discrimination was really, um, you know, mentioned again. And so uh, it, it prohibited that. So it meant that that white women and black women, uh, you know, oftentimes mo- both of them taking their f- very first jobs, you know, and trying to either help with the war effort or earn money or try to support their families when their husbands were gone. Um, but they earned the same thing. There could not be wage discrimination between those two. So for white women, maybe who never worked, it was, you know, a way to earn money and, and explore skill sets that they'd never uh, even thought about, you know, before that. Um, mm-hmm. But for black women, it was uh, potentially going from making $3 a week in a white woman's household, which would be one of their only options for employment at the time, to making 25 to $30 a week in, uh, at the Shell plant. So it was 10 times what they could earn. So it was definitely a, it was an interesting, even playing field. There was a a large bus system that would um, pick up, you know, these women because of course there was a gas shortage. So not everyone could drive in, or if you did drive in, you were carpooling with a lot of other people. So, um, so yeah, they got paid the same, they rode the same buses. And uh, according to some of the historical context that I research, a one called the Queen City at War, um, you know, they got along. And so I really wanted to sort of explore that. And when you, when you provide an e- even playing field, I mean, there still were obviously some, some inconsistencies in their working experiences, but when you get some of the basics um, leveled out, uh, it, it really can have a, um, an effect on their productivity as well as their just overall uh, love for their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And um, kind of a, a heavy follow-up question here. As someone who lives in Charlotte, do you feel like um, attitudes, uh, maybe not so much towards women, but towards minorities especially, have changed since this period? As a former insider who is now an outsider, it seems like it hasn't, um, other than on the surface. But I'm curious what you think as someone who lives in Charlotte and has for your whole life mostly. Well, I definitely think that it as soon as the Jeopardy as soon as the Japanese surrendered, mm-hmm. by 2.30 that afternoon, the day the, the Japanese surrendered, surrendered, they were all fired and told to go home. So mm-hmm. it was it was immediate. And that was, you know, black women, white women, what have you. Mm-hmm. And and production had been slowing. Um, and so then it was just the, the assumption that everyone would, would be excited about this and everyone would be happy to go back exactly to how it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to explore uh, the the dynamic of maybe that wasn't the the case maybe they weren't you know they, they were thrilled that the war was over they were thrilled that they you know the men were coming home but um but it it they'd all changed and and to say that let's go back exactly to the way it was um was not the uh you know best solution for folks who actually their their lives had improved during that time uh and that's i think a, just a, a function of war and in the in the war industry, I guess, 
mm-hmm. um, the labor shortage, what have you. But uh, but it was interesting to explore that. And then so I I just know that everything went right back. You know mm-hmm. their their job prospects. You know that would have been just go back and cleaning white woman's house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know Jim Crow laws were very prevalent. You know at the time. And but it was the birth of the civil rights movement was World War II, and there was a um, a, a a campaign called the the double victory, the double V campaign, which was victory abroad and victory at home. And so one of the quotes that I put in the book was um, when one of the the black men uh, come home or came home, you know, it was the the doesn't it seem strange that, you know, the world's greatest democracy is fighting uh, the biggest, you know, dictatorship with a segregated army? And I'd never really thought of it that way, but it is, you know, it's, it's takes sentences like that and, and, and feelings like that to really you know, make you more aware of what is going on. And, and as a, as a white person, I, mean, I, I wrote this, I had the idea right before the Me Too movement came out, and then I actually kept writing it through the George Floyd um, conflict. So I learned a lot about myself and mm-hmm. my own lens. And um, and I wanted to, I was fortunate enough that I had not finished the book as of yet. And I wanted to explore those uh, more. And I went back and I did add more of that. So it became, that's when it really took on the form of the narrative of a white protagonist and a black protagonist. And I had wonderful um uh, sensitivity readers that help me uh, do that and, and make those feelings come to life. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, Char- you know, to bring it back to the present day, Charlotte is a wonderful city and, you know, Asheville, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, et cetera. But there is the one shocking thing that was completely normalized growing up in that area and then moving to the West Coast and then coming back mm-hmm. to this, there's all the Confederate mm-hmm. flags everywhere. It's like, yeah, I know. Yeah. Are you guys thinking, and it's just weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't see many of those in Charlotte, though. Those are really more uh, yeah, like on the periphery, like once you get out into the kind of country. Yeah. A lot of state roads and unfortunately some interstate land that has very large versions of them and the more rural parts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, North Carolina is like any other kind of purplish state where you have these big cities where you don't see stuff like that. And then when you mm-hmm. get out, I mean, here in Colorado, when you get close to Kansas, you have some of that going on. Yeah, too. Um, and also, I also did learn that that the uh, the war was like before the war, North Carolina was more um, rural than it was urban. And because of these plants, there was one in Raleigh as well. Mm-hmm. Um that it and how it attracted people to come to the cities to get some of these um defense jobs mm-hmm. it 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 switched right afterwards it became more urban than rural yeah yeah for sure well thank you so much meredith um you talk a lot about church in this novel uh, how important is church to people in your novel and in charlotte in general yeah, so I I was born here and uh, raised in the the Catholic Church in Charlotte, but then I moved away um, to the Midwest, mm-hmm. and um, we we explored uh, different church options. And then when I came back twenty five years ago, I was I was a little bit surprised at how often that was the very first question I was asked as I was meeting people. Well, do you have a church yet? And so it really felt like that 
that structure was very ingrained in the community. So, so we were like, all right, sure, let's go and explore it. We're in. And so we did um, join a church and it was, it was a fabulous community. So I, you know, it's, you know, church is church and people have, you know, their ideas about that, but it was, especially after we had the triplets, it was one of the most helpful um, aspects of being in that um, wonderful community that I've ever experienced in my life. So, so that positive experience that I had with a church and, and how it can help you get ingrained into a new, a brand new city or a new community. Um, I did want, that's kind of how it ended up in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I ask because it is oftentimes in Charlotte and in that area, one of the first questions that people ask, and it's it's not so much on on this side of the country. So I think it's a very popular yeah. to to that culture for sure. I, I agree. It is it's ingrained in the culture. I don't know if it's as prevalent as it as it once was, but it's still definitely there. And we actually had a, a celebrity that moved to Charlotte, and one of the quotes that I remember in an article about why she chose it was that you know. It has a, uh, I wanted to be someplace with more like a church on every corner rather than a Starbucks in every corner. And so that is um, yeah. more, you know, Charlotte-ish than, than not. <laughs> yeah. Charlotte also has a Starbucks on every corner, folks. We do um, have that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who, who's the celebrity? I'm curious. Uh, Angie Hartman. All right. Oh, Angie Hartman. Sorry. Angie Hartman. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Thank you yeah. so much. Well, um. Finally, Meredith, we have barely grazed the surface of your novel, but hopefully we have turned some people onto it. But finally, because we are a podcast that is of a bookstore, can mm-hmm. you tell us about some of the books that are important to the characters in your novel and why they are important to them? Yes. Yeah, so I I have learned more through uh, the idea of of paradox you know things that are explored in books and then by reading those and then talking about them with other people than I have about any other classroom I mean that's sort of how classrooms especially the college classroom are structured anyway Mm -hmm. Um, but as a lifelong learner I've just have always loved that so I've always had a book book club group Mm -hmm. to where I can get my flavor of it and then and then try that on um, you, you know, try on the skin of the protagonist kind of thing, and then also talk about how someone else might have experienced the same story. And I just really believe in the, the power of story. Um, so uh, I definitely knew that the that these two main protagonists were going to meet over books, right? So there would not be a lot of opportunity for a, a Black woman and a white woman to become friends at that time. So I, I thought books are the great equalizer. We had, like many cities in Charlotte, we had a Carnegie library and Carnegie only donated um, to cities that would agree to build a white library and a black library at the same time. And so, and I did hear that some of those books were different in those um, different libraries, maybe more recent ones were on the shelves of the white libraries and then it would m- eventually migrate over to the black libraries. And so I wanted to explore those concepts. Uh, and Charlotte's always had a great library system that I have certainly benefited uh, with as an adult, as well as as a child. Mm-hmm. So um, the books that I wanted them to look into were, you know, maybe they discussed 
native son together. Um, maybe they discussed, well, I ended up looking up the most popular books in 1943 and A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was one of those. And so that is um, one of the stories that they read and they talk about how they saw the same scene and then they learned something about how each one of them saw that scene. So uh, that was a, a fun a chapter to write. And I have definitely experienced those myself being in the book clubs that I, that I adore. Yeah. And that was a fantastic scene. Thank you for writing that one. Well, listeners, I've been speaking with Meredith Ritchie, author of Poster Girls, which is published by our friends at Warren Publishing. Meredith, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Meredith Ritchie for joining me. Copies of Poster Girls can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.